1: we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Over the next few months, we're probably going to see a lot more of President Biden traveling around the country, giving speeches, shaking hands, and eating ice cream in various folksy locations. But next time you watch him in an event or giving a speech, do yourself a favor, try and spot the well-dressed military aide usually somewhere within 50 feet of Biden, carrying around a small, heavy black briefcase. Because wherever Biden goes, that briefcase goes with him. That briefcase being the nuclear football. And by the way, President Putin has one as well. You see, whilst many of us view the threat of nuclear war as something from a bygone era, for the US, Russia, and China, it is deadly serious business. And Biden will have to go around each and every day knowing that At any point in time, the US could receive word that the Russians have launched a massive nuclear strike towards the United States. The President could be shaking the hand of a farmer in Ohio one minute, and next minute being rushed into Air Force One to quickly take to the air. And assuming it takes him 15 minutes to get back to Air Force One, within seconds of him sitting down, he'll have generals and advisors yelling at him to make decisions that will either result in the deaths of 90% of all Americans, 90% of the entire world, or attempting to gamble that both sides can find a diplomatic off-ramp to the situation. In a nuclear scenario like this, the tensions around this are also ratcheted up, because both sides will know that their opposition will have generals yelling at their leaders that they need to launch everything they have as soon as possible, that Biden should take out as much of the Russian's nuclear weapons arsenal and command structure as possible, making any sort of second strike more difficult, and attempting to take out as much of Russia's nuclear weapons before they get a chance to launch. All being pitched as a way of saving American lives. He'll also have generals yelling at him to embrace limited target options, only looking to strike Russian nuclear sites, and sparing most of their major cities. That way there's a chance that Biden could go back to the table, holding major cities hostage, and hopefully find a way to exit the situation. Whilst there'll be other generals also yelling at Biden to not launch at all. Frankly, why end the world over this? And then instead he should be calling Vladimir Putin Begging him to abort the launches and be willing to give him whatever he wants, all in the name of saving lives. Now, at this point, information is going to be sketchy, but if the Russians truly had launched that first strike when Biden was still shaking hands, by the time the President was whisked onto Air Force One, 15 minutes had passed, which means the majority of these submarine based missiles, shooting out of the water just off the coast of the United States, have likely already detonated over most of the US's larger coastal cities. By this point, most of Western Europe's capitals would have already been impacted or will experience detonation sometime in the next few minutes. And if not already, within the next 15 to 20 minutes, the rest of Russia's much more powerful silo-based ICBMs would have made their way over the Arctic and will be detonating over US targets in somewhere between 40 and 50 US states, with that crucial decision of how to respond, and whether or not this is a glitch or a cyber attack, all having to be made on limited information and in just a few short minutes. This is the nightmare scenario for any president. And we're very thankful that it has not come to that as yet. And the reason it hasn't is probably because both sides have those briefcases. And both sides know that wherever those two leaders are anywhere in the world, even if they fire off first, those briefcases could be opened and nuclear strikes could be ordered. The retaliatory strikes that will come back towards them will demolish most of the attacker's cities within an hour as well. That the price for the strikes are simply too high. This balance and mutually assured destruction has likely kept the world's superpowers in check for nearly 75 years now, and the system seems to be working. That said, with recent developments, that balance may now be coming into question, because the world of nuclear weapons has become a lot more complicated in recent times. Now we have other players like North Korea, Israel, India, Pakistan, and China now all armed with nuclear weapons with states like China and North Korea also pursuing submarine-launch delivery systems, making attribution even more difficult to work out in those panicked few minutes. We have an entire US nuclear arsenal, much of which still runs on old floppy disks, and a command suddenly realizing that they've fallen behind over the last few years, and the price tag to restart the program is now a staggering 1.5 trillion US dollars, and further complicating all of that again, are space-based weapons which lower that decision-making time that Biden might have had from 40 minutes right down to 90 seconds. You see, whilst many put the prospect of nuclear war to the back of their mind, the situation in reality only became far, far, far more complicated. And that's what we're going to unpack here today, looking at the future of the US nuclear program, looking at how Washington is planning to meet this new $1.5 trillion price tag program, and how these new nuclear powers, like North Korea, change the balance and decision-making process within nuclear doctrine but to help us understand how we got here in the first place and the various decisions that have complicated all of this we turn to our first guest
2: hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley Fool money each weekday on motley Fool money we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on wall street on weekends we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow
0: With the end of the Cold War, everyone kind of thought that nuclear dangers would fall away. We saw massive reductions in nuclear stockpiles, tens of thousands of nuclear weapons either removed and destroyed. Andrew Futter is a professor of international politics at the University of
1: Leicester, specialising in global nuclear politics, nuclear strategy, and deterrence. In addition to that, he's also the head of the third Nuclear Age Project, as well as being the author of The Politics of Nuclear Weapons. So we're thrilled to have him back on the programme today.
0: The first nuclear age was the Cold War, 1945-1991, and we worried a lot about the Russians. We then had a second nuclear age where we worried a bit about so-called rogue states, nuclear weapons in the hands of terrorists. Now this third nuclear age is a sort of a, a mixture of more nuclear actors in different regions and a return of the importance of nuclear weapons. And that's why I think many people feel that we're in a slightly more dangerous world now. More actors, more competition, a return of the salience of nuclear weapons. So right now, all of the major nuclear powers are going through this massive overhaul
1: of the nuclear stockpiles, with the US in particular finally replacing their Minutemen 3 missiles, which have been in active service since the early 1970s, replacing these missiles with brand new Sentinel missiles. Now, a lot has changed in technology since 1970, and these Sentinels are unlikely to be like the Minuteman 3s running on big floppy disks. So what improvements are we likely to see from this new generation of ICBM missiles?
0: The best way to characterise it it is a replacement pretty much like for like, just with slightly more capable systems. It had got to a point where the various delivery systems in particular, and indeed some warheads, had just reached the end of their service lives. Those Minuteman 3s, some of them went in the silos in the 1970s. The US still uses the B-52 bomber, which first flew in the 1960s. Submarines are a generation old. So each of these systems just has a natural service life that just means you need to replace them for safety reasons. But there's also slightly more capable warheads, slightly more capable or slightly more stealthy platforms in terms of of aircraft and submarines are required because adversaries or major US potential adversaries are increasing their ability to disrupt these systems. So Russian continued interest in ballistic missile defences, concerns about ever greater anti-submarine warfare and anti-underwater capabilities that might be used to find those submarines, increased air and and missile and air defence capabilities as well. So most of what you were just talking about there would have to do
1: with the US program. And I know you're sitting in the UK at the moment, so I wanna ask you a bit about that one. Now, the UK is also currently undergoing a massive overhaul of its nuclear strategy. All of this coming after the country had already ditched all of their land-based missiles, with London now entirely reliant on a submarine fleet in order to deploy nuclear weapons. But recently, we also had another announcement that the UK are looking to not only reduce stockpiles, but will now be outsourcing their nuclear warhead production to the United States. With the UK looking to cut costs by upgrading their Mark IV nuclear warheads made in the UK to the American made W93 warheads, the ones the American submarine fleet are also transitioning over toward now. Now, both the Mark IV and the W93 have fairly similar yields, but the W93 is just a bit more modern. However, that's likely to roll out in the 2030s, and for now, the British will maintain the Mark IV on top of the US made Trident missile. So, can you take us through the thinking behind this decision?
0: It's often quoted that the UK is replacing like for like, where the UK is building a fleet of four nuclear-powered submarines that will carry the US-made Trident missile with our own warheads. This will replace the four submarines that the UK currently has. Likewise, there may be some slight advances in a new UK warhead, but my guess is that its destructive power will be broadly the same. And the same is kind of true in a lot of other states. I guess the, the outlier, to some extent, would be China, where there may be a, a rush to a much bigger stockpile, a much bigger nuclear deliverable nuclear capability with the unveiling of the possible ICBM fields and increasing investment in, in all sorts of missiles and indeed in submarines as well. Some states are slowly building up. Pakistan would be another example, perhaps, where modernization also means expansion, The North Koreans are looking at different types of nuclear capability and nuclear delivery system. So it's a mixture between those that are essentially prolonging the life or prolonging the central idea of why they had nuclear weapons in the first place and those that are slightly expanding.
1: Undoubtedly, though, the biggest story in this field has been China, who itself is going through what many are calling a nuclear breakout. Now, currently, China possesses around 400-ish nuclear weapons, but the analysts watching this field are expecting that to quickly grow to around 1,500 within the next few years with delivery vehicles available to China from land, air, and sea. However, the biggest news most people have been reporting on when it comes to China is Beijing reportedly ditching its no-first-use nuclear policy, raising concern from other Pacific actors. Now, do you think its ramp-up of these nuclear stockpiles, as well as this change of policy, indicate a major shift in Chinese strategy, or are nuclear doctrines really kind of just a bit of rhetoric? And when it does come to that particular situation, when things hit the fan, all these nations are pretty much going to do whatever they want to do anyway.
0: I think there's some truth in in the last point that you made that actually words and statements don't matter a great deal when, when things really hit the pan. I, I think sometimes, particularly as Western observers and scholars, we tend to ascribe things to different actors that maybe is not what they're doing or the reason why they're doing it. I'm not entirely sure that there are big changes in Russian and Chinese doctrine necessarily. Uh, what I think is happening in both Russia and China is there's just a, a slow increase in emphasis on nuclear weapons and a belief that they have a political role. So how certain can we be as to how each of these nations would respond
1: after a nuclear strike? Now, obviously, we have a lot of historical documents we can look at to give us some idea of how these nations would react. But whenever it comes to anything fairly modern, we find that most of the nuclear doctrine and strategy papers are somewhat classified or even self-contradictory. You know, If we were to look at maybe even just the best estimate and use a bit of an example here, if China were to launch a nuclear strike on someone like Pearl Harbor and Guam, do you think Washington would be more likely to go and strike Beijing directly Or is it more likely that we might see a proportional response with the Americans simply strike
0: two Chinese naval facilities? The simple answer to that is we just don't know. Of course, we'll be war games and different operational plans for different scenarios. But I think it's very difficult to know exactly what any, any, well, in this case, what the US president or or, or indeed any other actors would do in this situation. We don't really know what this crisis would look like how it starts, whether it moves from conventional skirmish, whether something escalates accidentally, whether there's limited objectives that can be met. A couple of things that are worth contextualising with are, one, ambiguity around nuclear deterrence is a key part of nuclear deterrence policy. So making sure that your adversary doesn't quite know where your red lines are can sometimes be very useful because it means that they are less willing to push you in certain ways. So actually sometimes declaring exactly what you would do is not that useful because then if you don't live up to it, it undermines it. The second thing is, as far as I can tell, there is no Chinese interest in using nuclear weapons against Taiwan. They are there to deter U.S. intervention from the outside. Whether the U.S. would feel the need to utilize nuclear weapons in any scenario there is difficult to say. It depends how the war goes. It depends what the conventional states of forces look like. So it's difficult. And, and, and I think this is one of the questions that's puzzling many policymakers and professionals and academics is we don't quite know what escalation pathways look like in that region.
1: Well, what about if we look at Europe then? What do you think the NATO response would be if, let's say, Russia were to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine?
0: There are conceivable scenarios where nuclear weapons could play a battlefield stroke tactical role in that war. The use of nuclear weapons would seem to be such a massive shift that you'd have to wonder whether it was really worth whatever perceived military gains that that Russia would achieve. I'm not entirely sure that any type of so-called battlefield or tactical Russian nuclear use would have to be met with a NATO stroke US nuclear response. It kind of depends what it looks like. And it may be that a surgical conventional response against particular targets linked to where that particular capability was fired from, whether it's an air base or whatever, or missile transport, a particular regiment that, that did that. There's not lots of obvious military benefit from using nuclear weapons for the Russians in that war. And there's still this underlying fear that if you respond to nuclear use with nuclear use, wh- where does it go? There's no guarantee that that stops. If you cause slightly more damage than the original detonation, then well, does that mean there has to be a response? And this, of course, is, is the other great fear that many commentators, scholars, policymakers have, is that once nuclear use starts, it will be very difficult to control and it would move perhaps quite quickly from battlefield, localized, tactical, military targets to something that hits people.
1: And this is one of the troubles here, that an all-out nuclear exchange would likely end most life on the planet. And to explain how, let's actually unpack that for a moment. See, if the US and Russia were to enter a full nuclear exchange, we'd likely see some pretty horrifying results pretty quickly, with the estimates expecting somewhere between a few hundred million all the way up to a few billion people to be dead within the first five to six hours. Now, the immediate radiation that would come from these explosions would be a problem, but actually not the biggest one as the residual radiation from these newer bombs is actually fairly low and geographically isolated compared to something like a Chernobyl or a Fukushima. And unless there's large amounts of wind or it gets into the water stream, it may not be as big of a problem. But more than a few of these bombs are likely to do that. The real problem, though, would be all of this dirt put into the atmosphere. Now, this all takes place because the detonations that take place within a nuclear explosion produce an immense amount of heat and energy that then go on to produce intense firestorms and explosions. The explosions then lift vast quantities of dust, soot, and debris from the Earth's surface up into the atmosphere. And once in the atmosphere, these particulates can then spread globally, forming a thick, dense layer of aerosols and particulate matters. Now, if there's enough dirt that's been thrown into the air and this layer becomes thick enough, it can significantly reduce the amount of solar radiation that hits the Earth's surface, causing global temperatures to drop and a significant darkness that could persist for weeks or even months or years, depending on the amount and type of particulates that are being chucked into the atmosphere. Now, in the immediate short term, this reduction of sunlight will decrease the surface temperature of the planet, likely dropping the global temperature by around 1.8 degrees Celsius which means at very least, we'll actually hit our Kyoto targets. The effect we're talking about here is more commonly referred to as nuclear winter. But the temperature drop isn't the worst part. This situation would also cause an 8% drop in rain right across the planet, and drastically lower the survivability and output of world crops, lowering the food supply on the planet. This effect doesn't come from the nuclear weapons, but instead comes from how much dirt we managed to throw into the air all at once. Hence why in the past humans have been able to detonate 2,476 nuclear weapons. And the planet still hasn't killed us yet. The difference is, in this scenario, where Russia and the United States are throwing their nuclear weapons out all at once, we're going to see an exponential rise in the amount of teragrams of dirt thrown into the air. And to put it all in context for you, the massive Canadian wildfires last year that turned the entire US eastern seaboard orange for a few days, well, that chucked around 0.06 teragrams of dirt into the atmosphere. An exchange between India and Pakistan is assumed to put about 5 to 47 teragrams into the atmosphere, whereas the exchange between the US and Russia is likely to chuck somewhere between 150 to 180 teragrams into the atmosphere. Which should sound alarming, as the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs and ended most life on this planet actually ended up only chucking about 170 teragrams into the atmosphere. So the effect of a nuclear exchange is likely even worse than that. Now, if I know this and you know this, then we have to assume the high commands of both Russia and the United States are aware of this as well. So do you think this situation, where frankly we would plunge humanity into a dark age, would prevent any of these nations from actually pushing the big red button, or making sure they limit these nuclear strikes to specific military targets?
0: it's pretty clear that massive use of nuclear weapons would have enormous disastrous climatic effects. That's pretty much accepted. I think it's worth unpacking the fact that not all nuclear use scenarios would have the same impact. I mean, they would all be bad, but obviously using a thousand large yield nuclear weapons as opposed to a handful of smaller ones would, would have a different impact. You could say that that is part of deterrence because we, we all kind of accept that the use of these things would be so terrible, therefore we shouldn't do it. But I think the idea of climatic effects being a major handbrake on decisions around nuclear weapons in a crisis where a leadership believes the existence of a country or leadership is under threat is probably a bit unlikely, to be honest. I think, unfortunately, once a war starts, I don't see this being one of the main things that would be thought about.
1: Now, the US's exact nuclear strategy is highly classified, so we won't be talking about it here today. However, what we can discuss is some of the US's older declassified war documents. Now, if we look at OPLAN 8010-12, which is effectively the US's nuclear strategy between the years of 1962 and 2003, we can see that the US has levels of priority when it comes to nuclear targets. Number one being enemy nuclear forces. This would be Russia's nuclear silos, as well as some airfields and mobile launches. Level two would be conventional forces. This would be Russia's tanks, artillery, as well as naval ships and airfields. Tier three targets would be military and political centers. This would likely be headquarters, logistics, or communication centers, as well as most of Russia's very major cities. And the last tier, tier 4, would be the economic and industrial cities of the country. Now, this exact list was obviously discontinued in 2003, but do you think a version of this list is still in use today? Or do you think the plans changed and the US would now just ride off every Russian city with more than 2,000 people in it?
0: I think sometimes we're led to believe that a nuclear war will be minute one, everything gets used, thousands of weapons are exploded and, and whatever else. And that, and that certainly is possible. I think it's probably the least likely, but it's possible we have something like that. And that, of course, is the worst possible scenario. That's the one that causes all the climatic effects, kills lots of people, destroys country, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's always been debate around limited nuclear options of whether you could fight a limited nuclear war, whether you could use particular types of nuclear devices in a limited way. And that could involve possibly targeting particular military facilities. It could be involve battlefield use. And these would be inverted commas, lower yield nuclear weapons in the low kilotons, notwithstanding the fact that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were low kiloton explosion. So it, it really depends. All states with nuclear weapons probably have different types of nuclear employment plans. For the major players, there are probably lots of different options where, in where nuclear weapons could be involved. So you could have lots of different graduate scenarios. You could have a scenario where lots of nuclear weapons get used all at once. You could have a scenario where it's tit for tat over a certain period of time. You could have nuclear use followed by non-nuclear use, followed by a conventional war, followed by nuclear use again. There's no, there's no playbook that, that, that anyone's going to follow. And, and again, this is one of the reasons many people warn of not letting this genie out of the bottle, because we don't really know where it would go. And while it's certainly true that using nuclear weapons doesn't automatically mean that all nuclear weapons will be used and will destroy the planet, equally there's no guarantee that that won't happen either.
1: One of the core underlying concepts when it comes to nuclear weapons and nuclear doctrine has always been mutually assured destruction, probably better known to most as MAD. The idea being that if Russia were to launch a whole bunch of missiles at the US, well, the US would be able to see those missiles coming and launch everything they have back at the Russians. Meaning that if anyone plays this game, both sides lose. And many would speculate that this is the main thing that kept the Cold War from going hot. Now, this balance of power held quite well in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But this balance of power would be somewhat upset in the 1980s when the U.S. began pursuing seriously their anti-ballistic missile program. Now, the concept behind the anti-ballistic missile program was to build missiles that would shoot down incoming Russian ICBMs. And with the U.S. pursuing this program, the Russians began to worry that the U.S. might be in a situation where they could hit Russia, but Russia couldn't hit the U.S. And with that imbalance of power, that the U.S. might be tempted to take advantage of that window opportunity. Now, disregard the fact that the U.S. ABM program was ridiculously financially bloated. The fact that the missiles only hit their target about 10% of the time, and the fact that each missile cost the equivalent of around 23 Russian ICBMs, it was still seen as an absolute destabilizer to the mad doctrine. And for a combination of a whole bunch of reasons, the US would eventually wind down their ABM program in the mid-80s and 90s, and balance was somewhat restored in the eyes of Moscow. But then the USSR fell apart, and today the US is re-examining the ABM programs. So Russia is also trying to alter the imbalance of power, reportedly by looking at nuclear weapons in space, likely with the aim of avoiding that 40-minute flight time from Siberia to Washington, and enabling a 90-second flight time from orbit straight down to Washington, limiting the counter-strikeability of the US forces. Now, in your opinion, do developments like this, whether it is the ABM program or whether it is these space-based weapons, do they threaten to destabilise the balance of power that comes with MAD?
0: The 40-minute warning for where an ICBM leaves Russian territory, flies over the North Pole and hits the US is based on a... A satellite picking up the infrared of a rocket launch and then that allowing it to be traced and whatever else. Now, not all nuclear weapons are delivered by missiles. You have free, full bombs and you don't necessarily know which aeroplanes would be carrying free, full bombs. Um, so there are a number of different scenarios where that warning time would actually be quite a lot less. Um, and, and that's an ideal type for want of a better world. There's always been a debate about anti ballistic missile defenses or, or ballistic missile defenses, about whether they stabilize or destabilize. The logic of it, of co- it, it, according to nuclear planners or deterrence theorists, is that if one side builds a defence, it makes its opponent feel concerned because it can't necessarily throw, um, hit the targets that it could, and therefore stability through mutual vulnerability is, is undermined. The jury's kind of out on that, but what we are seeing is that all major nuclear players are pursuing anti-missile defences in different guises. The US has been doing it for years. China is looking into this. India is looking into this. Israel already deploys various different types of air and missile defences. Russia has a missile defence system around Moscow. So this is something that that is is not going away and is complicating things. And and of course, the big fear in the past was that this would drive arms racing or at least make reductions more difficult. Um, That's kind of where we are today.
1: Now we spend so much time studying Russia, China and the UK that many people probably feel fairly comfortable understanding those countries' inner political workings, how the decision-making processes are done, and where the nuclear red lines are likely to be. However, now that we have India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel in the nuclear club, this is where things seem to be getting a little more complicated. Do you think the introduction of more nuclear states is likely to make this geopolitical landscape less or more complicated going forward?
0: Well, there's only been a few states that have acquired and kept nuclear weapons, There are quite a few that have tried or had nuclear programs or who have the kind of infrastructure and capability uh, to do so the the most obvious one is iran iran from from where i can see is just moving into a position where it could build a nuclear weapon if it wanted to the key thing is not just the nuclear aspect but looking at the way that iran might seek to deliver this weapon so the missile program the warhead program all, all the other bits that go with it so iran would be a very obvious candidate at some point in the future and then there are a number of states that exist with a certain degree of latency. So Japan is a classic example here. South Korea would be another potential um, possibility. Brazil because of its fuel cycle and nuclear research and other infrastructure that it has. So there are some states that could move to this position relatively easily, or at least relatively quickly. The obvious thing would, for me would be a withdrawal of US extended deterrence guarantees or support from either Europe or Northeast Asia would create pressures in, in a number of countries to rethink the role of nuclear weapons and whether nuclear weapons have a deterrent effect that, that might be needed. It's a mixture of all of these things that make today's world perhaps more dangerous than at any time for a generation.
1: For many, nuclear war is something that hasn't been an issue for quite a few years now. After all, the US left the Cold War victorious with no real peer adversaries to worry about. And the only other nuclear threats left seem to be smaller states like North Korea. But now, seemingly all of a sudden, Moscow is marching westward again, and Beijing is experiencing its own nuclear breakout. In response, the US is now scrambling to rebuild much of its old capacity, and fire up a supply chain that really hasn't been active now for nearly 30 years. But can they do it? How much is it going to cost? And from which parts of the military are they likely to pull the money from? Well, to answer those questions,
2: we turn to our second guest. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Part 2. Mutually Assured Construction
3: In terms of nuclear weapons, very little has changed over the past 50, 60 years. The real innovation is occurring in delivery systems, how to get that warhead from your territory onto target. And there, there's a tremendous amount of innovation going on as missiles become faster and stealthier and can essentially go thousands of kilometers towards a
1: target. William Alberg is the Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Previously, William served as the director for NATO's Arms Control, Disarmament, and WMD Non-Proliferation Center, and has more than 25 years' experience in arms control, disarmament, and non-proliferation, going on to help shape everything from UN resolutions to national policy across his long-standing career. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: You also see innovations in terms of putting nuclear weapons in higher and higher altitudes approaching space, China is doing some really innovative things in terms of space delivery vehicles, which are still highly classified, but we can see some things happening in outer space that are relatively strange and unusual. There's a news story that's been out over the past couple of days that Russia may be experimenting with something that's either nuclear armed or nuclear powered in outer space. If it's nuclear-armed, it would be a violation of the Outer Space Treaty. If it's nuclear-powered, that's a little bit more common. They may be looking at some sort of nuclear-powered laser or other type of electronic disruption device that they would put in outer space.
1: So why spend all this money on space-based nuclear weapons? Are they there to target other satellites in space? Or is this more likely to be a way of enabling a much more deadly first strike and giving the enemy much less warning time to react?
3: Well, with any missile that launches from your territory, there's attribution because you can see where it came from. Even a sub-launched ballistic missile, where the submarine can launch from anywhere in the ocean, you still see the thing breach the water, and on a ballistic trajectory, it's very easy to spot from satellites. And in fact, the reason you would have it in outer space is it doesn't have that very, very long upwards trajectory. It can just come down. And because it's coming down, it can reach very high speeds, uh, it can come from any angle, so it can defeat missile defenses or your radars. It can come from an unexpected direction. and You can imagine a satellite directly over Washington, D.C. would be far preferable in terms of hitting D.C. by surprise compared to launching an ICBM from a missile field in Russia or China.
1: So there is this nuclear arms race really kicking off at the moment, but do you have any idea where these countries sit and who might be currently ahead? How do Russia or China's capabilities, let's say, compared to the U.S.?
3: The Russians have been resolute on updating their strategic forces. So they've been involved in testing and building new ICBMs for more than 20 years, uh, new ICBMs and new sub launch ballistic missiles. So they are far ahead of us in terms of modernization. The United States is now talking about a new system called the Sentinel, but it's still years and years from delivery, whereas the Russians uh, you know, have modernized or upgraded a very high percentage of their missile forces. Sadly, the United States really neglected its nuclear weapons supporting infrastructure over the past 34 years. After the end of the Cold War, it just wasn't seen as a great investment. George W. Bush in particular did very little to fund the nuclear enterprise. Despite claiming he wanted a new type of nuclear weapon, a deep penetrator, the actual funding for the infrastructure across the nuclear complex was incredibly neglected. The Obama administration, when they got the New START Treaty ratified, part of the deal with Congress to get the New START Treaty ratified was that they had to spend a lot of money improving the infrastructure. But it still, at that point, was just stopping rot that had been going on for
1: decades well, this is probably a good place to get into one of the primary issues within the US nuclear program at the moment. The production of nuclear pits. Now, to go over the basics of this and obviously wildly oversimplify, at the very heart of a nuclear bomb is a round object known as the pit. Now, typically, pits are usually made out of highly enriched uranium or plutonium, with some other elements like beryllium or polonium also included to act as initiators, or slight amounts of lead to act as a tamper. Now the pit is essentially the very heart of the nuclear bomb, as the pit is the main driver of the nuclear explosion. Now to explain how the other parts of the bomb work. The pit, once assembled, is placed into the core of the warhead, which is then surrounded by an implosion mechanism, usually consisting of conventional explosives. These explosives are carefully arranged and configured, but when they go off they will fire inwards compressing the pit, which compresses the fissile material within the pit and sends it into a supercritical state where the rate of fission increases rapidly and brings the pit to a critical mass. Then that chain of nuclear fission occurs, and the atomic nuclei split into smaller nuclei, releasing large amounts of energy in the form of radiation and heat. And as that fissile material undergoes fission, it emits neutrons, with those neutrons then colliding with one another, splitting to release more neutrons, and creating a chain reaction that ends in a nuclear explosion. However, that process there, that's a fission bomb. Effectively, the kind of bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima but these days we have much larger weapons. In fact, all the nuclear weapons within the US arsenal today, harnessing deuterium tritium fusion-boosted weapons with fission primaries and radiation implosion thermonuclear secondaries, which in much more understandable terms means that the fission bomb, the type of bomb used in Hiroshima, these days is just the primary bomb, and instead today only acts as the trigger for the much larger bomb around it. In other words, we're using conventional explosives to trigger the primary, and nuclear explosives to trigger the secondary, the secondary being the much, much larger explosive. Now, with US secondaries, they typically contain deuterium and tritium, with some nuclear designs also having small amounts of deuterium tritium gas injected into the center of the primary stage to increase the yield of the trigger. So, this combination of a primary fission explosion and then the secondary fusion reaction results in a significantly more powerful explosion than either stage alone could ever produce. So that's the basics of how a nuclear bomb works. Now, the problem for the U.S. is within the production of those initial pits that sit right at the heart of the bomb. As most of the U.S. pits were made decades ago, and some newer research is indicating that the stability of the current stockpile of U.S. pits may be approaching the end of its safety period. And yet, the U.S. shut down most of its pit production facilities and capabilities toward the end of the Cold War. After all, we weren't launching or testing any nuclear weapons. What it means is that at the current period, there are only a handful of people left in the country who can produce these pits. And now that we need a lot of pits very quickly, this is where the problem lies. With the US now looking to spend an additional $30 billion to try and restart their pit production, to either produce new pits or take advantage of a lot of the older ones they have in storage. Now, some of the reports we dug up on this project suggest that $14 to $18 billion has already been sunk into the project of pit production. And for that money, little progress has actually been made on the issue so far. So we're in a situation where the clock is ticking and the pits currently sitting within the US arsenal are rapidly approaching the period where they possibly become unstable or even unsafe. Now, there's been repeated problems within the production chain for these pits. And at the moment, it looks very unlikely that the US would be able to hit their goal of producing 50 pits per year anytime soon. So how do you think the US plans to overcome this bottleneck within the nuclear production chain?
3: So NNSA, the the National Nuclear Security Administration, is in charge of refurbishing tonium pits, that's really important because old pits, you need to make sure that they're safe and secure and Available for use and, and ready to go. And they have a plan to refurbish a certain number of pits per year, but for the reasons of underfunding and under maintenance of the infrastructure, they just haven't got the capacity right now to do anything above the absolute minimum. And that was fine before we saw Russia really thinking about arms racing and before China started actually building up a substantially larger nuclear arsenal,
1: but that may not be sufficient for the future. So from what I understand, the US is also having major troubles acquiring the required amounts of tritium as well, as tritium is not naturally abundant on Earth and is almost entirely produced artificially, further complicated by the fact that it's difficult to store and has a relatively short half-life as well, all added to the fact that it requires specialty reactors in order to produce it in the first place. So can you take us through some of the problems that the US is facing at the moment acquiring the tritium that it needs for these larger bombs?
3: That's a problem with today, yes. The US relies on tritium to boost the yield of our warheads, and that's not an ideal design. It made more sense in the Cold War when you were constantly coming up with new designs and new configurations, but now it is a limitation. There's only one place in the United States that makes tritium, and it's a problem. There is one thing to note, though, the pursuit of fusion power means that there may be more sources of tritium, even if the fusion reactors themselves never become economically viable. But fusion has been coming for like 50 years
1: now. It's, it's never really arrived. Now, the current stockpile of US missiles are so old that they require massive floppy disks in order to operate, which on one hand does sound pretty bad, but on the other, also means they're so old that the only way to hack into them would be to actually travel to the launch site, dig down into the cables, and then manually splice into them. So from a cyber perspective, they're actually pretty secure. However, now that the US is moving to new missiles, presumably ones that don't operate on floppy disks, are there new concerns around the cybersecurity of this new missile program?
3: Quite frankly, there are some lessons to be learned from some of the analog technologies that we used in the past. As you pointed out, some of the older systems that require floppy disks or are simply by when they were designed are air-gapped from any kind of vulnerabilities. So I, I think
1: we will continue to make sure those systems are secure. So obviously the cybersecurity within these missiles has to be at least looked at or improved, but what other developments we we likely to see with this new generation of U.S. missiles?
3: I don't think they have a lot of capabilities that are different. It's just that the minimum M3 is a very old system. And so to have a safer, more secure system, you would want to look at the design again and go through and see what safety improvements and technological improvements you can put in there to make sure that it's better. But, you, know, you want to make sure that systems aren't decaying and that you have very little chance of failure. But in terms of ICBMs, it's launch and reentry. There's not a lot of difference once you move to solid fuel,
1: and we've been on solid fuel for decades. So these new central missiles also look like they'll be coming with a whole set of new silos and facilities as well, which, as you can imagine, is drastically going to increase the costs here. So what is the reason the US sticks with silo-based missiles when we see nations like the UK move to completely submarine-launched missiles?
3: As for the argument as to why you have ICBMs versus relying on the sea and air of the triad, there are all kinds of arguments that people make about forces your enemy to basically waste a lot of warheads hitting targets that are in the middle of Montana or North Dakota or something like that. Personally, I think those arguments are more post facto just, justifications rather than logic based or mission based. The other thing that you have to take into consideration is the way the Senate and c- Congress as a whole works. It's much better if you have a lot of support for any individual program, and you know this from any American military program. They tend to break down the contracts and make sure the contracts are spread over as many states as possible so that as many senators and members of the House of Representatives will vote for that system as humanly possible. And you can imagine with states like Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, these are relatively sparse populations, but they each have two senators. and. Gosh, it's nice to have six, seven, eight senators from those states, in addition to the other senators who support strong defense, backing you on anything. And also if you know the Air Force were to announce that they were going to close the silos in a particular state, those two state senators would go apoplectic because they would be losing money. So you see this kind of symbiotic relationship is what's going to make sure that the ICBMs don't go away, rather than really hard cold military logic about what's the most effective in terms
1: of deterring Russia, China, and other adversaries. These programs are likely to come with massive cost overruns, with the overall price tag for this modernization program expected to come in at around $1.5 US dollars, and that's before the inevitable cost overruns. This program alone is likely to take up around 8% of the total US military budget over the next 10 years, and already some of these blowouts are having effects on other branches of the US military with the Navy being forced to cut back on a number of its conventional warships to pay for some of the additional costs within the nuclear programs. So why are these nuclear programs so consistently expensive?
3: Of course, when you're making a bid for a contract and then to get the contract, it's the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, the, the more money that's in the contract, the less likely the government is to dump the contractors and go with someone else. So years into a project, you basically have your client over a barrel in terms of well you've already spent 100 billion in order to finish now you need another 110 billion that's just a commercial imperative that occurs in any weapon system the other thing is these things do become more complex as you go along and there are unforeseen problems issues you end up having to spend money and what about the russian and chinese systems how do they compare to the us in the russian system to have such huge corruption on the conventional side. So the Russians operate independent nuclear weapons. The Chinese, it was an area where there was a tremendous amount of corruption, and we've seen different Chinese generals just disappear, airbrushed out of existence, including the former minister of defense, specifically because Xi does believe that he needs a reliable nuclear deterrent, but has allowed parts of the military to maintain a corrupt existence.
1: So the U.S. has around 1,500 nuclear warheads deployed at the moment, which is probably more than enough to blow up the rest of the world. So can you take us through the thinking behind why the U.S. would keep such a large arsenal?
3: 1,550 is an awful lot, and the number of warheads we have in our hedge and the number of non strategic nuclear weapons that we have is probably sufficient for anything we need right now, except the psychological factor of whether or not numbers really matter and why they matter and how. The fact is, a lot of this is psychological. The whole idea of deterrence itself is the idea that you can convince your adversary that the cost of attacking you is too high. It's not worth the benefit. So all of this is, to some degree, a psychological game we're playing. And going below 1,550 strategic warheads for the United States and Russia is a psychological barrier that we have not been able to pass through. Now, you'll recall the United States actually proposed in Berlin during the Obama administration to further reductions, to go down closer to 1,000 warheads on each side. And it was the Russians who said, absolutely not. But the question you ask is, is exactly the right question. What are you buying with all that boom? And a targeter can't tell you how many warheads they need. That's not the question. The question is, how many targets do you need me to hold at risk, and what's the percentage chance that you want me to be able to say that I can destroy your target. So, if you say you have 200 targets and I need an 85% chance of destroying them all, then I have a better idea of how many warheads I need. But what we've been doing since the end of the Cold War is just saying, well, just cut it down to here and then tell me what we got. Uh, it, it hasn't really been done through more of a process of going through, figuring out what are all your targets are, what level of risk do you need to hold them at, and then let that drive the number of warheads. And in that environment, it's much easier therefore to hedge at a much higher number, hedge for uncertainty, hedge for potential changes. And quite frankly, with the way that Russia and China are going, you know, if we had cut down to a bare minimum 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think we would be in a bit of a panic right now because there would be questions as to whether China or Russia would just simply think by just by that gross top-line number that they could intimidate the United States or defeat us or scare our allies. So that's why these nu- these nuclear weapon numbers tend to be higher and they tend to get very sticky, and, in other words, very hard to change, to revise downward, just because of the fear of the psychological element of not just deterring your enemy, but also assuring your friends, assuring the NATO allies, assuring Japan and South Korea that we will be able to deter their adversaries as well and to defend them. It just makes it really hard to revise downward. Even though, again, as I mentioned, the Obama administration tried, but Russia absolutely refused. And now China is building up and we have no idea how high they'll go. And
1: how would you characterize China's capabilities at the moment?
3: We are very far ahead of China right now. However, China is building nuclear reactors that will be able to create massive amounts of plutonium in a very short period of time. So they will have the capacity if they really choose to race up to that 1,550 strategic warheads that the U.S. and Russia agreed to under the New START Treaty, they will have that capacity. Russia, too, has uh, enormous capacity in terms of being able to, to manufacture warheads should they choose to or to take all of their warheads that were in retirement or in the dispensement queue out, refurbish them and uh, to put them in the field. The United States has a lot less capacity in the system to build or to refurbish enough warheads out of the hedge, out of the retirement queue. We have more headroom in terms of how many delivery systems we have because since the end of the Cold War we have taken our sub ballistic missiles for instance. Each one of them can carry 10 warheads. We downloaded them to one warhead each. So in theory, we could very quickly, if we had the warheads, put a huge number of them on our existing delivery systems. And the same thing with ICBMs. We could load all the, the Minutemen up to their capacity and field a lot more warheads tomorrow. But the real short end here for the United States is just the physical plant and the people available to refurbish uh, pits. Again, Frank Rose and and Jill Ruby are trying to recruit and trying to build that out. And as they will tell you, uh, their capacity just to meet current requirements is stretched to the absolute breaking point. So any new requirements there means we would not be able to keep up. So if we do think China may run past the US and Russia and huge pressure comes in from Congress to build up warheads, we're going to have to fundamentally change our nuclear complex in order to accommodate that.
1: So why also focus on so many delivery systems, like strategic bombers, stealth bombers, submarine launched, or even tactical nuclear weapons? What is the thing behind having such a diversity of methods of deployment?
3: So on the one hand, sure, having different delivery systems might cover some of those gaps, but quite frankly, that's not the issue. The issue again is the psychology of deterrence and the psychology of assurance. Some of our allies want us to build sea-launched nuclear-armed sea-launched cruise missiles or to put them back onto submarines like we had in the Cold War. Uh, For Japan and South Korea especially, this was a very important system. But for internal reasons, just for political reasons in the US, we're having this huge argument as to whether that's necessary or not. It may be that a future president just say, you know what, it'll make the Allies happy, just do it. I don't care if it's necessary or not. And again, that gets back to so much of this as a psychological game to deter your enemies and assure your friends. I think it's telling that China is spending so much to build a massive nuclear arsenal. I think it's telling that India and Pakistan both have spent so much money on their arsenals. And when you look at Russia's war on Ukraine, when you look at their statements towards the NATO allies, when you look at China's statement about Taiwan, when you look at North Korea's statements about South Korea, there are a lot of countries that are perfectly comfortable with having a conventional war that would cause destruction, that would make you or I absolutely horrified beyond imagination. And they would initiate that war tomorrow if they thought they could win. And nuclear weapons is one of the reasons that they think they can't win. The fact that the United States has this arsenal, the fact that the United States is willing to defend its allies. So while, sure, we could build three more carriers, China can build three more missiles to blow them up and probably with a nuclear warhead on board as well. And then you don't have those three carriers anymore. So unfortunately, for better or for worse, nuclear deterrence has been the most powerful way to prevent wars like World War II from breaking out again.
1: At the end of the Cold War, Russia's economy nearly collapsed, and almost every branch of its armed services had to undergo incredibly severe cutbacks. The army was shaved down, the Navy was neglected, and the Air Force wouldn't see any large developments on new projects for a number of years. The Strategic Rocket Forces, though, well, they just kept on working, turning over new pits, renewing old warheads, recycling materials, and most importantly, maintaining the Strategic Rocket Forces' prime place within the new Russian command. What's often viewed as a sideshow for the Americans, for the Russians, is viewed with great reverence and importance. Fast forward a few decades now, with Moscow maintaining its robust nuclear production facilities, and China quickly growing their nuclear production system, there is some concern in Washington. Maybe falling behind in the field of weapons where deterrence and bluster frankly means everything. But how bad is the problem? And how did the U.S. get here? Well, to answer that, we're to our final guest.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. Part Three Power versus
4: Peace. I would argue that the traditional arms control architecture that we negotiated over the late 60s and 70s is now becoming more obsolete. And so these things require both sides sitting down at the table. However, there's no sign the sides are going to do
1: that anytime. Donald Jensen is a senior advisor for Russia and Europe for the United States Institute of Peace. Donald writes extensively on Russia's domestic politics as well as its foreign security policies. Prior to his role at the USIP, Donald was a former US diplomat and provided senior staff and leadership during the negotiations for the START, INF, and SDI treaty negotiations between the United States and Russia. He was also a member of the first 10-man US inspection team to the Soviet missile bases under the INF Treaty in 1988. Following that, he was also the Associate Director of Broadcasting and Head of the Research Division at Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. What's not like the Cold War.
4: Russia and China both are aggressively trying to become superpowers. And that was not the case in the 1980s, when as antagonistic as the USSR and the United States were, they were going toward what became a detente and then a series of arms control agreements under Gorbachev and Reagan, and now the tension is ratcheting up in the other direction. And that, combined with the aspirations of China and Russia, makes all of this stuff vastly more complicated. For our example, China is developing and modernizing its systems. It has about 300 warheads, but it's also building up.
1: So being a specialist on Russia in particular, I hope you can unpack something I think a lot of people get wrong about the Russian and Chinese militaries and that's to do with the importance of the Russian strategic rocket forces. You see, when we take a look at the American forces, they have strategic nuclear forces, the guys that run the nuclear silos and the nuclear missiles. Quite a lot of the infrastructure and funding will come under the Department of Energy's jurisdiction, whilst the actual military side of it comes under a unified combatant command, controlled directly by the Department of Defense, and held on the same level as something like the US Cyber Command or US Space Command. When we look at China, Their People's Liberation Army Rocket Force simply fits in as part of the Chinese army, but for Russia, their Strategic Rocket Forces are an entirely separate branch, akin to the ground forces, navy or air forces, with commanders from the Strategic Rocket Forces actually often even serving in very high positions within the overall Russian general staff, and the branch being seen with a lot more importance and prestige than it tends to be within the US or Chinese militaries. So can you take us through this disparity and, and explain to us why the Russians place their strategic armed forces in much more of a central position than we see with someone like US or China? And how seriously should we be taking the Russian strategic rocket forces, considering what you've seen from the Navy and Air Force's operations within Ukraine?
4: When I was in college in the 80s, people would say, maybe they don't work. They do work. And while they have drawbacks, there's no doubt that they could hit a major Western capital within minutes. But we have to keep in mind as well that the Russians have these things, as we do, on submarines and on bombers. And so while we spent a lot of months negotiating how to count a bomber loaded with nuclear bombs compared to a normal ICBM, these rules take a long time to work out. What the Ukraine war has shown is that the Russian rhetoric about using nukes has been alarming to some people because there's always been sort of a perception that nuclear weapons would be the weapons of last resort. But in Ukraine and elsewhere, the Russians seem willing to talk about using nukes much more than I think people expected. And that has raised a lot of alarms in the West. Now, of course, the fear that the Russians would use nukes is called deterrence. And the fear is almost more effective than the whether they actually would or not. But Certainly, for much of the Cold War, the assumption was, and Russian nuclear doctrine was, that they had a lower threshold in any case.
1: Now, recently I was going through some old declassified Soviet war plans for their invasion of Europe back from the 1960s and 70s for a Patreon event we just had, and reading these documents, there were a few things that really stuck out to me, one of which being the Russian view on nuclear weapons. You see, when I was reading the equivalent American documents from the time, The American documents mostly gave me the impression that the moment that nuclear weapons had been used on the battlefield in Europe, that the genie was out the bottle, and the US would be very willing to go to full strategic strikes quite quickly, having that mentality of, well, we can probably get most of the Russian nuclear forces before they try and get us. However, reading the Russian documents, they seemed to give me the impression they believed that tactical nukes, which are smaller battlefield nukes, were very much on the table when it came to any upcoming European war viewing tactical nuclear weapons as more tools to help shape the battlefield. In fact, some of these documents seem to give the impression that the Soviets believed that as long as it didn't strike another nuclear nation, like the US or France, they would be perfectly fine for tactical nukes to be used on the battlefield, without risking global annihilation. Now, with you having worked with these Soviet commanders personally, is that something you found as well? That the Soviets had a much more tactical or staged view of how these weapons could be used?
4: I always had that impression too. Well, the Russians realized that their conventional military was not as strong as NATO's military, although it outnumbered them. And so the the nukes were a backup to any military disadvantage they might have on the tactical battlefield. But again, having the capability is different than using. But relatedly is the theology, if you want to call it, of how you use these weapons, the strategic ones, against the other side. And that has gone back and forth, first use, preemptive strike it became a, a doctrine developed over 40 or 50 years which made each side relatively comfortable that the other side would only use these as a last resort at least on the strategic level and this predictability, this rules-based architecture to govern these weapons helped a lot. But I think de facto the Russians would use nuclear weapons more readily than the West would than the United States would.
1: And this difference of prioritization and this willingness to embrace nuclear weapons probably does go some way to explaining the continued importance of nuclear arms production within the Russian arms industry. So can you explain to us why it is that whilst the Americans rolled back quite a lot of the nuclear arms production in the late 80s and 90s, the Russians frankly kept most of it going. And whilst many would argue their pits and parts of their equipment aren't quite as good as the Americans, they do have much more capacity to produce more and produce more frequently. Can you take us through why the Russians decided to continue on with their program?
4: Well, the, the Russian military-industrial complex is long developed and very large, although it's reduced from previous years. The Russians put pride place on the strategic nuclear forces and don't have some of the production and other issues you mentioned as much as we do, because you can always direct a certain factory or industry sector of the industry to develop whatever the central leadership wants. What they do face as constraints are still technology, but also just resources. Putin has talked about the Sarmat, he's talked about other weapon systems, but they almost always have technical problems that need ironing out compared to Putin's rhetoric. But the Russians are pretty far along at all of that, as are the Chinese. So the ball is really in the United States court.
1: So there's been a bit of a trend in nuclear weapons that we've seen since the back end of the Cold War up until now. And that's to do with the size and yield that is most commonly being deployed by each force. Now what I mean by this is, if we look at the bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, that was a 15 kiloton weapon, meaning its blast is the equivalent of around 15,000 tons of TNT. Now then as the Cold War progresses on, the bombs get bigger and bigger and bigger, reaching a peak in 1961, with the Soviets dropping the SAR bomb, a staggering 50 megaton weapon, meaning its explosion is the equivalent of 50 million tons of TNT or nearly 3,500 times as powerful as the bomb dropped on Japan just 16 years earlier. However, when we look at most of the weapons deployed today, like the US's quite commonly used W-88 warhead, that warhead's yield is only around 500 kilotons. So it's still over 30 times as powerful as the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, but it's only about 1% as powerful as what the Tsar bomb can put out. And it's not just the US that's done this. The Russians also mostly use around 500 kiloton warheads these days. So why are both sides turned away from using these massive warheads and moved towards using much smaller, much more precise ones that would only destroy most of an entire city?
4: You have done your homework. Good question. On the Russian side, it was partly a reflection of their inability to construct missile warheads with the precision that they needed. So the Russians went for size. And as they ironed out some of those technological problems, They could then refine and break up the delivery uh, systems to smaller, more accurate weapons. So one of the things you're seeing now is a reassessment because of Ukraine, primarily a reassessment of the ways of war on both sides. The Russian point of view, and they see a conventional force that has not been as effective as they had hoped in Ukraine. You see money being poured into modernizing their strategic nuclear forces. But you're also seeing money poured into the development of long-range hypervelocity weapons that don't have nuclear charges and things like space weapons.
1: Well, I- But what avenue do you see the Russians prioritizing when it comes to nuclear delivery systems? Will they focus on their sub-launched missiles or their smaller, more mobile missiles, or even the gravity bombs dropped by something like a Tu-22 or a Tu-95? do you think the russians will follow the brits and look to prioritize one method over the others or will they continue to maintain all of these methods to give themselves the range of options when it comes to nuclear delivery
4: i think balance is better the benefit to a submarine force is that it's survivable because you get very hard to, to hit missile systems on submarines that move around all the time so if you're north korea you put your strategic missiles on mobile platforms usually railroad or on trucks, or you have them naval systems that can move around and make the targeting much more difficult. Bombers are less viable because it does take time to get there and are considered a retaliatory force more than anything else.
1: Now, obviously, relations between Russia and the West at the moment are pretty frosty, but do you ever think we will see something like a START-3 treaty or any sort of future negotiations about further lowering the nuclear stockpiles between Russia and the United States?
4: I think that the Russians... When push comes to shove, would like a follow on start agreement. Let's call it start three, because it makes U.S. actions predictable. They can appropriate the money and technology to counter them in any way that they feel most appropriate. And since the U.S. is still talking about whether to modernize, I think we're talking about a long, long process here. But I think you have to keep in mind that Russians do not see war and peace as black and white the way that we see it. And a lot of these are multidimensional challenges to the West. And as we saw this week with the satellite weaponry, there's all these new dimensions opening up. And so whether there's a START treaty or not, and I hope that there is, doesn't even come close to the kind of security challenge that Russia poses for Europe and for the West.
1: nuclear weapons have simultaneously become the largest complicating and largest simplifying weapon humanity has probably ever created. On one hand, it is pretty easy to see how nuclear weapons almost drove the two superpowers during the Cold War into an absolutely devastating global conflict during certain events in 1947, 1950, and 1962. But at the exact same time, you can also make the case that nuclear weapons stopped those two sides from escalating their tensions into full-blown war, during incidents in 1949, 1953, 1962, 1967, 1975, 1979, and even 1983. But it's also brought about a world where two nuclear-armed states have never invaded one another, which when compared to the rest of history, is quite remarkable. However, this field is once again heading into a complicated phase. And whilst yes, we do have far less warheads active in the world today, we now also have nine states who possess them with the foreign policies of almost every single one of them definitely raising an eyebrow or two from time to time. This new situation the US is finding themselves in is one where the Russians continue to dominate the field in nuclear quantity, one where the Chinese are quickly catching up, and one where the North Koreans are acquiring increasing range and increasing difficulty to target them. And in contrast, we have an aging US missile program, still reliant on technology from the 70s and 80s, and a UK program that's been whittled down to just a few submarine-based missiles, whose last test of the Trident missile went wrong, and I'd be willing to bet that the next one in a couple of days' time probably will too. In this new geopolitical landscape, it seems obvious that the US should undertake its modernization program, that it needs to maintain the deterrence and keep that price far too high for it to ever be considered as an option for any opposing state. But it's a huge project, and one that the Air Force claims will be the biggest project they ever do, and by undertaking it, it's going to cost the US military $1.5 trillion, meaning that for the next decade, we are going to see this program gouge chunks out of every other branch of the military, the program having already taken a bite out of the Navy's funding. And yes, I'm the first to admit that $1.5 trillion is a lot of money, but it's easy to see that it's also a bargain when we compare it to the cost of the US having to fight another world war on a foreign continent as well as the money they'll have to pour out afterwards in order to put that continent back together again. This will likely end up as the most expensive project that they hope never to actually use. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. This episode was slightly morbid to put together, but still really interesting nonetheless. However, knowing us, whether it's this channel or us the channel Context Matters, I'm sure it won't be the last time we cover a morbid topic like this. And if you want to be made aware of when we do drop that next awfully cheerful episode or when we might be dropping some brand new content, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Blue Sky, Mastodon, threads, Instagram, Facebook, Discord and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Michaelite Oz Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help myself and the team keep the show going. And speaking of amazing Patreons, we'd like to thank Bartek, Adam Kalniuk, Gavin Thompson, Tanith, J.A. Gormley, Phil Orban, Dave Edwards, Raúl, and Nathaniel Davis, who are the latest Patreons to sign up or increase their donations as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our listeners like this, whose donations help us put these episodes together. And for that, we cannot thank them enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, and you want special access to the content like our recent workshop, Unpacking China's War Plans for Taiwan, or the recording of last week's workshop where we went through the Soviet invasion plans for Europe, you can sign up to our Patreon today via the links in the description. But for now, this episode on nuclear weapons, it's all thanks to you guys. As usual though, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Politics of Nuclear Weapons. By this week's guest, Andrew Futter, for a look at what is driving the modern nuclear discussion. The second is A Technical History of America's Nuclear Weapons, by Peter A. Gotz, for a more technical look at nuclear weapons from the mid-cold war to now. And the third is Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Diplomacy, by Todd S. Shesher, for a closer look at the decision-making process around how nuclear weapons are used. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Andrew Futter, William Alberg, and Donald Jensen, all three of you were absolutely amazing to have on this one and we can't thank you enough for coming on. In addition, I also want to give a serious thanks to the primary researchers of this piece with those being Jemima Pentreath, Gabriel Lane, Mason Wise, Jamie Tanu and Isaac Gibbs who did an amazing job putting the research together for this episode. On top of those guys, I'd also like to thank the rest of the staff here at the show. That being Cameron Gale, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Juvella, Genevieve donnell may Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Lamb; Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, Scott Missler Ferguson, Jemima Pentreath, Ben Nutter, Mason Wise, Gabriel Lane, Lorenz van Kielbilk, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers. Jamie Tanno, our MIDI director, Raoul de Van Ryanan, our Ocean Analyst, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voice of our artist, Kashyap Maheshwari, and Alexander Woolgarten from our online team, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Risa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. I am always so incredibly thankful for all the work this team puts into pulling these episodes together. And lastly, like I said at the Red Line, we'll be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night.
2: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization